Hello and welcome to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. This week, we get an update on the current business climate on the ground in China with Australian Financial Review China correspondent Michael Smith. I caught up with Mike in Shanghai to look at life as a business correspondent in China and what it's like sifting through the trends and themes in Chinese media and the challenge of accessing sources for stories. We also discussed the Australian business presence in China, including the difference between businesses who fly in and fly out and those permanently on the ground in China. We evaluate the experience of Australian executives in the China market, the importance of MOUs, joint ventures, the current status of coal exports, and how the US-China trade war could affect Australian economic engagement with the PRC. Michael Smith has 25 years experience as a journalist and editor with newspapers and wire agencies in Australia, Hong Kong, and the United Kingdom. Specialising in business and politics, his roles have included chief political correspondent in Hong Kong during the lead-up to the 1997 handover to China, news editor, chief of staff and senior writer and columnist with the Australian Financial Review. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Shanghai with the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, Michael Smith. Michael, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so, Mike, how long have you been in China? Uh, I've been in China for 14 months. I arrived in January last year. Um, so I'm still fairly green, but uh, I've learned a lot in the short amount of time I've been here. It's an amazing place. And so how steep has the learning curve been in, in adjusting to, to reporting over here as opposed to reporting back in Australia? It's been a huge learning curve. Um, I, I w- I've worked in Hong Kong before. I worked in Hong Kong in the 90s and then in other parts of the world, and I've been a journalist for 20 years. But coming to China is really something else. I, I was sort of... I had a bit of an idea of what to expect, but um, look, it is difficult being a journalist here. You don't have the same access to, certainly not to politicians and to senior business figures that you would in a place like Australia. Uh, The media is sort of tightly, the local media is very tightly controlled here, um, so it can be difficult to gain access, but but there are always ways and there are Mm. always people who will speak to you. Because you predominantly cover business issues, does that not make it a little easier to get access to people um, compared to maybe a journalist who's covering social issues over here? In a way, it does. Um, China's seasoned foreign correspondents here tell me it is getting much harder to report on sensitive issues in China. There's a lot of restrictions in place if you if you try and travel to Xianjing and places like that. Um, traditionally, covering the economies. Um, been less sensitive, but that's also changed uh, just in the period that I've been here. Um, We've found, uh, we've had economists, stockbrokers, traders who have been talking to the FinReview for for 10 years and they're they're clamping up. They're a bit uh, scared to talk openly about how they feel about the trade war. Mm. Uh, China's economy is slowing now, so that is becoming more of a sensitive issue for the government. So, So the economy is no longer out of bounds when it comes to censorship. Um, so the challenge there is getting people to tell you what's really going on here. And 
Do you think that if, if those people don't go on record but they talk to you, is that, is that still helpful for you to build up a story? Yeah, that's very helpful because often it's the only way to get a clear picture about what's going on here. We, we've particularly found that with the trade war. We'll talk to traders on the record and they'll go, no, everything's great, the, the trade war's not affecting us. Then, then, then you turn the tape recorder off and they're, they're very, very negative but um, they're worried they will get into trouble with the government if those views uh, become public. And so what's es- essential in, in building up a story for you over here in China? Is it is it Weibo? Is it, is it personal contacts? What's the thing that a journalist, a, a business journalist can't do without following stories here in China? Yeah, well, it's surprisingly the amount of resources at your disposal. Um, of course, we read the Chinese media every day. Again, that, again, that's censored, but it, but it, it does give you a lot of clues into how the government's thinking and and what policies are being implemented and and the general sentiment uh, there. So that that's an important source of news. Social media is a huge source of news in China. Mm. Uh, uh, Weibo and WeChat groups are just incredible. I mean, my. F- first realisation uh, around this came in March when um, China changed the constitution to give um, the President Xi Jinping presidency for life, or they, they abolished sort of presidential term limits, mm. and immediately on social media we noticed there was this huge backlash, a lot of criticism, and um, our ears really pricked up and thought, this is a huge story, people are openly criticising government policy. Mm. Now, of course, many of those comments disappeared within 24 hours, but they're all there in black and white and it's enough time to sort of gauge what's going on. Um, right. So that's very important. How do you find them? Are they, are they collected together through, through a hashtag or are there threads or themes? Or how, how do you find like a particular issue on, on something complicated like Weibo? Well, it's, um, it's, a lot of it's in Mandarin, so I have a very um, talented and experienced um, assistant who, who helps with that. But um, there's hashtags and there's, there's particular WeChat groups. There's sort of WeChat groups are really common in China in terms of your social life but also business life. And if you know which WeChat groups to look in, you can sort of get a real sense of about um, how people are feeling. Sometimes mm. it's interesting just to see what all your friends are saying and um, mm. there's a lot of sort of social commentary. You can get a really good idea about um, what people are thinking. There's also a great website which is run out of the US called uh, What's on Weibo um, mm. and um, that, that's quite a fun source of, of information as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, now, Mike, there's certainly a lot of Australian businesses who are doing business over here in China these days particularly here in, in Shanghai. Um, do, you, do you see a stark difference between the businesses who live here and, and are, so to speak, at the coalface of doing business in China compared to those that have a bit of a fly-in, fly-out relationship with China? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found from my own personal experience, I thought I knew quite China quite well. I've been coming here on and off for years. I had a lot of friends who lived here. And then you, you land here... And quickly, within weeks, it's you. You quickly realise I know absolutely nothing yeah, right. about this place. Um, there, there's a lot of cultural differences, social differences. Uh, the way business is conducted here is obviously very different. So, you know, if you fly in and out, you you really know nothing. Um, of course, it doesn't hurt. It's great to spend any t- time on the ground here and and uh, talking to people. But I I meet with a lot of Australian businesses who, who do pop in and um, you go and have a drink and it's just incredible how little they know about China even though they're sort of running businesses here and and have partners here. Mm. Um, and then you meet the Australians who have been living here for 
for sort of 10 years or so and, and their knowledge of China is is much deeper. A lot of it's just the, the, the subtle stuff around, um, around how contracts work, around mm. the fact that regulations can change overnight and there's a lot of frustrations um, doing business in China and living in China and, and sort of understanding how those work is, is very important. You just can't expect things to work in the same way that it would in Australia. Would you say businesses on the ground here are, are a little more patient and have learnt to roll with the punches of the complexities of doing business over here a little more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, over a beer they'll all whinge to you, but um, <laughs> but I think they they certainly understand the complexities of doing business here and patience is is hugely important. And, um, I mean, most people who come to China know this, the importance of relationships and really putting a lot of effort and time into building these relationships with your partners and, and your networks is absolutely crucial. Mm. And just dealing with those day-to-day -day frustrations, the, the government decisions um, that mean, you know, you might have organised a, a big event and suddenly there'll be a decision from high up and, and the event can't go on any longer and, and sort of little little things like that. And and so what about um, Australian high-level executives? How do, you, how do you rate their China expertise in, in general? Maybe if you compare it to US or UK high-level executives? Yeah, I think um, a lot of Australian executives look at China as sort of being this big unlimited bag of money and they can just sort of come in here and, and there's so many people yeah. here, so many consumers here. I, you, I, I just need 1% of the China market type mentality. Exactly. So they, they seem to think there's buckets of money here um, and there is a lot of money here but, but it doesn't really work like that. Capital's still hard to get. Um, and I think doing business here is just a lot harder than, than many uh, expect. Look, I've been told by a lot of people here that um, companies in the US and the UK and Europe do have a bit of a deeper understanding of China, which surprises me, mm. given Australia's a lot closer. Mm. Um, this came out when um, there were changes, big changes to China's e-commerce rules a few months ago, which, which really affected all those companies in Australia selling vitamins and, and dairy products yeah. on, online and, and a lot of consultants here told me that the Australian companies wouldn't listen to them, wouldn't take their advice. They seemed to think they could sort of come to China and do it on their own but they said the European companies and the American companies seem to be more open to taking advice about doing business in China. Okay. So do you feel the development of e-commerce in China makes a, a lot of Australian businesses feel that they can do business with China from Australia and that maybe they take more a bit of a relaxed approach where they don't come here as often because they feel the e-commerce market can essentially help facilitate that business for them? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that thinking. I think a lot of executives don't want to live in China. They prefer to live in Australia for, for many different reasons and that makes it harder getting really experienced, talented executives on the ground here sometimes. So I think there is a bit of a, a mentality. It's like we can just sell stuff through through Alibaba or whatever into China and um, it'll just run itself. But but that obviously isn't the case. Mm. Um, you know, there's a few examples. You've got um, people like Jessica Rudd, who's got her own uh, e-commerce venture into China and, and um, someone like that spent a lot of time in China, spends a lot of time on the ground in China, comes and lives here, has contacts um, and really knows how the place works. So mm. that, that's sort of very important. Mm. Yeah. So, Mike, you mentioned some of the current misconceptions that Australians have about doing business with China. Um, how do you see MOUs? Are they, are they just a piece of paper or do you feel that Chinese entities take MOUs a little more seriously than Australian firms do? 
Yeah, MOUs are really interesting. They were in the spotlight a couple of months ago. I don't know if you saw the the clip uh, on online of Donald Trump in the White House meeting the Chinese trade delegation, and he just gets up and sort of says, "MOUs are just a piece of paper, oh, right. and they're yeah. they're yeah. pretty worthless." And um, and they are interesting because. They aren't a contract and I think there's a lot of confusion amongst companies in Australia about what an MOU is. So MOUs aren't necessarily a legally binding contract um, in the way that Australians would view it as sort of a regular legal contract. But they're sort of very important symbolically in China. You Mm. always – you have the big MOU signing, you have the photographs – um, so they're sort of an important step into getting a business deal done and, and people shouldn't shy away of them. Interestingly, someone was saying to me the other day that in a way Chinese companies take MOUs less seriously than Australian companies and this happened right. This happened over 10 years ago when Fortescue Metals uh, was sort of starting to do a lot of deals in China and apparently they had a lot of frustration. They were signing these MOUs and then... Um, their, their partners weren't necessarily sort of abiding by them because they weren't sort of legally legally binding. So right. there's sort of different different perceptions. Someone who's been in China, an Australian who's been in China for 20 years, told me the other day, she said, people need to understand that even a contract in China is just the beginning. If you do a business deal here, that's just be- the beginning. It sort of lays out some of the parameters, but it's not the end game. Whereas in right. Australia, the contract's... The final. The final stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what about joint ventures compared with wholly owned foreign enterprises? Do you see more Australians going down a J- JV route doing business here or are you seeing a rise in woofy wholly owned foreign enterprises here for, for businesses that are operating over here in China? Yeah, that's a really interesting issue. I think traditionally foreign companies coming into China have really had to go down the joint venture path. Um, in some cases say with the Australian banking banking sector, legally you just had to have a joint venture. You yeah. couldn't have majority ownership of a, of a bank or a, another company. But there's a bit of a shift there. And we've seen it with a company like Lendlease. Um, they're doing a big aged care venture in Shanghai. They're, they're building a whole bunch of aged care units. They spent years here trying to find joint venture partners, mm. talking to everyone, talking to the government. And in the end, they just couldn't get a deal that worked for them, so they decided to go to go out on their own, and that's now working out for them. Um, they're in a bit of a unique spot because healthcare's and aged care's a sector that's um, really growing in China, and China needs foreign expertise in this area. So they're willing to open their doors to an Australian firm and let them have a wholly owned business. But there are more opportunities now um, to to be a wholly owned enterprise in China. But it's also risky. You you don't have the backing sure. of a local partner yeah. who can come in and protect you. And if you're doing it on your own, you really need people on the ground who understand China, uh, understand how the rules work. So when you're out having a drink with Australian businesses who live and work over here in China, what's the what's the general sentiment that you feel? Is it is it getting more difficult to do business over here? Yeah, that's interesting. At the moment, there is a bit of caution in the air and you you speak to a lot of Aussies in Shanghai who have been here 20 years and some of them are leaving. Some of them, there's always sort of stories about like it's not not like the good old days, it's getting harder for expatriates in China. Um, Some of the perks are disappearing, some of the tax breaks are disappearing. There's been a bit of 
tension around the whole Huawei case and the fact that um, China arrested sort of these two very senior Canadians and that sort of rattled people a bit. Mm. But, on, but on the whole, people aren't too paranoid. People uh, still see China as a place where you can do very well in business and, and make a lot of money. So they're not sort of fleeing the country yet. There's still a lot of opportunity here. But I think it's sort of those subtle challenges. Um, you know, there's more regulation now, the tax system's changing. And also China just sort of doesn't need us in the way that it did right. five or ten years ago. It's, yeah. it's got a lot of its, its own expertise now. Um, and how do you see the, I guess, evolving and, and developing bilateral relationship between Australia and China? How, how do you see the political relationship affecting business over here? Do you see a direct relationship between perhaps, you know, the, the foreign minister making comments about Huawei or the South China Sea and, and, and businesses over here? Yeah, there's been a lot... I mean, there's obviously been a lot in the in the media about this and... Um, Sometimes it's hard to interpret. You'll you'll have a negative comment coming out of the government, um, and longer term, I think that does cause problems for business in China. There's not necessarily a direct response from China the following week. Um, you've you've had cases in the past. China has a long history of using its economic clout uh, to put pressure on companies countries diplomatically. So I think there's a lot of concern and probably probably well justified that this could happen to Australia again in the future. Mm. But at the moment, but you talk to a lot of businesses here and they say their businesses haven't been directly affected by the diplomatic tensions so far, but they're also quite unhappy with the way the relationship's been played out over the last 18 months. So right. the bilateral relationship appears to be a bit smoother in the last six months than it was 18 months ago. And China really, I think, saw the, the change in, in our Prime Minister as a bit of a chance to reset the relationship. And then Maurice Payne came up here and there, there's, been a, there's been a sort of few meetings now. We've got an election yeah. and that's going to be, you know, both sides of politics seem to be uh, keen to sort of reset things. But, um, but longer term, the business community sort of, is a bit nervous about this. There's, there's a sense that the relationship is never going to be as good as it was before right. and um, it could cause them problems further down the track. Um, and so what about coal? As, as China looks to buy less Australian coal, do you think that this is related to the political relationship or do you think that's more about um, China's economic priorities of how it likes to source its own imports? Yeah, coal's been a fascinating one because everyone's completely confused about uh, uh, what's, about what's, happening. About what's <laughs> going on with coal. So what we do know, there are definitely restrictions in place on Australian coal exports and there's delays at the ports. Um, what we don't know for sure is, is Australian coal being singled out and, mm. and is it being singled out for political reasons? I was at a big coal conference yesterday. Now, officially, um, the industry leaders, the, the government officials, they're all saying, look, there is no ban on Australian coal. Um, you know, we're not singling out Australia for any particular reason. And then you go and talk to people off the record and all the traders, um, the coal traders over coffee, and they, they are convinced that th this is political retaliation against Australia, mm. um, against comments that have been made by Australian prime ministers and, and foreign ministers mm. over the last 18 months, mm. whether it's South China Sea or the Huawei decision... And they're, they're convinced that this is political retaliation. Mm. Um, China also doesn't need our coal as much as it did. It's trying to prop up its own domestic 
coal industry at the moment, um, so it's not a bad time for them to to start cutting this off. Okay. And what about the US-China trade war? Is that something that people are discussing quite a lot over here and, and, and specifically how Australia could be affected by the outcome as well? Yeah, so the US-China trade war has been one of the biggest stories for the last six months. Um, I mean, it was it was affecting the economy here. It was affecting the stock market. I mean, everyone was talking about it. You just speak to ordinary Chinese people and they were worried about the trade war. Right. And, and Donald Trump, in a way, forced the Chinese government to um, possibly become a bit less aggressive on the foreign pol- policy front and, and to be willing to make concessions. The mood sort of shifted in the last few months. There seems to be a perception that that they will get a deal. It might be a bit of a cosmetic deal. Yeah. Um, the Chinese economy's um, going to be okay. Um, so it's become less of a talking point. And one of the questions now is, what does this mean for Australia? Mm. People are saying that China might buy more uh, American gas, wine, beef, and possibly even coal as a, as a result of a deal. Yeah. Um, so there could be impl- implications for Australia here. Um, but at the moment, the government and a lot of a lot of businesses. We were speaking to the CEO of Woodside Petroleum last week, and they say, look, there's room in the market for both of us, um, okay. and they're not overly worried at the moment. But it's something Australia has to be mindful of. You get up here and you realise how small we are and how easily it is for us to be caught in the middle of, of China and the US and and this idea that we might have to take sides and um, how we're going to manage yeah. both those important relationships. What about CHAFTA? So, like, CHAFTA essentially elevated the Australia-China relationship. Um, so, to help weather similar storms like the trade war, do you think CHAFTA's um, a helpful mechanism that can help boost the Australia-China economic relationship and that maybe in the future CHAFTA could be updated to kind of help facilitate more two-way trade and investment? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that um, uh, that CHAFTA was a was a, a great deal for Australia and, um, and, it, and it really helped improve the trade relationship. Um, I think in the future there's there's sort of a sense that um, it may have gone as far as it can go for now. I yeah. mean, it's, it's been a good thing. It's helped a lot of industries out. Mm. Um, there's sort of no talk of sort of boosting it further. Yeah. Um, and if the US and China become closer on trade, that, that in a way could sort of freeze us out in the future. Mm. Okay, Mike. So for businesses that are looking to learn more and, and, and follow China, what's the best way for getting your head around China for, for an individual or, or business to, to, to learn more about the market over here and life in general? Yeah, I think, I mean, one way and um, the, the hard way is to sort of devote a huge chunk of your life to China, mm. come up here, learn the language. I mean, people have told me the best way to learn Chinese is to be here for three years and totally immerse yourself in language training, but mm. um, but you need the luxury to be able to sure. stop working for three years to do that. But but learn the language and spend a lot of time up here uh, is one way to do it. Not everyone can do that. Um, the other way is to, you know, really live here, even if it's for a couple of years, and, and try and immerse yourself in the place a, a little bit um, and, and just go to business meetings and work and get a feel sort of sort of for how business works and you can still take that experience back to Australia and um, and use it for, for the businesses you're working with. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Okay, well, Mike Smith, thanks a lot for your time today. Thanks very much.
My thanks to Mike for shedding some light from the coalface of Australia-China business relations in Shanghai. If you want to follow Mike on Twitter or access his previous stories, you can find links on this episode's show notes at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can also find all our previous podcast episodes. Please pass on the podcast to a friend, colleague or client who has an interest in doing business with China and the constantly evolving Australia-China relationship. Thanks once again to the Australia-China Council for their support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. Until next time, Zai Jian.